May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So as I've been saying uh, for the last few weeks, Lent is a time inspired by the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness wrestling with and being tested in the identity that had been confirmed as, at his baptism, that he was the beloved Son of God. What did beloved Son of God mean? How was he going to live that out? And what would he trade it in for? Originally, Lent was a time of preparation for those who were to be baptised at the upcoming Easter celebrations. It was a time of preparation as they prepared to take on a new identity as beloved children of God. So today, Lent for us is a time to ask, what does it mean for us to be beloved children of God? How does that shape our identity? What helps us know that we are beloved children? And what helps us live that out? And what gets in the way of knowing that we are beloved children? And what gets in the way of living that out? So, how does this Sunday's readings help us in that? In the uh, reading from Ephesians, which may or may not have been written by Paul, there's a lot of debate about that, uh, the Catholics in their New Jerusalem Bible translate verses 8 and 9, Because it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, not by anything of your own, but by a gift from God, not by anything you have done, so that nobody can claim the credit we are God's works of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has already designated to make up our way of life. We are God's works of art. It's kind of like beloved children, really, isn't it? I wonder if we really believe that. Or whether there's a lot of question marks around that for us. And as I read that, I'm reminded of St. Augustine of Hippo and those who were here nine years ago. It was about my third sermon here. I gave you a great treatise on, uh, on the Trinity, which is, well, some would say, St. Augustine's greatest piece of work. Most of his other things he just kind of sat down and belted out. But this one took something like 30 years to write. And in it he described humanity as being made in the image of God to live blessed, a blessed and righteous life, dwelling in the being of God. So Lent is a time for us to know that we are made in the image of God. We are God's works of art. We are beloved children of God, invited to dwell in the being of God. Our Gospel reading uh, contains one of the most, if not the most famous, Bible verse ever. Which, well, certainly lately, it just pops up magically at all kinds of sporting events and large events. If there's a large group of people, 
especially in America, you will, if you look at the crowd, be able to see somebody holding up a sign saying John 3.16, which assumes that everyone in the crowd and watching on television has any idea what John 3.16 is, which is not an assumption we can make anymore. There'd be a whole lot of people in New Zealand who would look at that and go, who's John? Is that his birthday? I don't understand. What is that? God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. I'm wondering how you felt as you listened to this morning's gospel reading. Was it good news or was it hard news? We had a really interesting conversation about this on Tuesday morning. A surprising conversation for some where a number of our group find this a really hard reading. And it really does depend on what is the, the worldview, well not even the worldview, the, theolo- the theological framework we bring to, well, this reading, but any reading of the Bible. What are the assumptions that we start from? Because we all start with a particular story in mind. And then when we read the Bible, we read it from that point of view and we hear that story being confirmed or challenged. So for quite a number of years now, hundreds of years, a dominant story in the Western Christian theological framework has been that, uh, as one of my directors once explained this to me, uh, because I needed it explained to me, um, that God is a righteous God and cannot suffer to have anything that is unrighteous or sinful in the presence of God, and condemns all that is sinful to death, which is all of humanity and all of creation. But this God has sent Jesus to die in our place as long as we say the right prayer, believe the right things, do the right things, whatever it is that you have to do. Uh, so this was a framework that I lived in for a short while, uh, while I was kind of circling around Youth for Christ things, and it was probably the framework that kind of got me going seriously on the Christian journey. And it is the framework that lots of people have in our world, and probably a significant number of you, because it has been the dominant Christian worldview in the West for a long time. So when we come to this reading from that point of view, this is a really hard reading because, yeah, God sent His Son so that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. But if you don't believe in His Son, however we understand that phrase, that means you don't have eternal life. And the flip side of that is eternal damnation. So this is a very judgmental reading. And people struggle with it. And I can understand that. But is that the worldview of John? Is that what John was trying to talk about? And I would think that the answer is no. Because actually, that wasn't the Jewish framework, and John was a Jew, like Jesus, we keep forgetting that. And it wasn't the framework of the early church. And in fact, you've got to get around a thousand before an Archbishop of Canterbury and so on first started coming up with these kind of ideas. So, in their worldview, sure, the world was not great. So, who who has condemned the world? 
If not God, who has condemned the world? Well, the powers of darkness that ensnare and enslave and trap the world to be the dysfunctional, sinful place that it is, they have condemned the world to death. And in the early church's framework, in love, Jesus comes amongst us to break the bonds of death and to defeat those powers so that all might have life again. Now the Jewish understanding was, and still is, that because of the fall, Genesis 3, this world is a broken place. And God is at work trying to fix that. This world is a broken place, and God is at work fixing that. So this isn't a story about Jesus coming to get us into heaven, and we don't need to worry about this world. This is a story about God's work fixing this world. Through the covenants with Israel, through God's faithfulness, God's righteousness, and this is certainly how Paul understood this, God would renew humanity and through renewed humanity would restore creation to what it was to be. It has eternal consequences, but the focus was this world and us living in this world. That's an entirely different story. So how do we see these powers then that enslave Well, yesterday I was with a group of Franciscans and we were talking about climate change. And we were talking about how hard it is to change what we do. So we were talking, for example, about catching buses. But saying, you know, it's quite hard because you you can't go directly to where you want to go. And you have to go to a hub and you have to change the bus and it takes longer. And it's pretty inconvenient. So we don't catch the bus, we drive the car. I'm like that. But that's actually part of the problem. Our desire to get there as quickly as possible, our convenience being the most important thing, is part of the problem. That is, well, was slowly killing this world, that killing is speeding up. And the consequences will be dire. We are judged, not by God, but by what is happening already on this world, by our actions, and by our putting ourselves first. And I'm as guilty of that as anyone else, and it's really hard to break that. There's the consequences, there's the judgment. When we have a look at John, And John 3.16, we pluck that out and we say, that's a hard verse. And we forget about where it sits in John's Gospel, which is right at the beginning. And it sits with a conversation between Jesus and a rabbi called, a Pharisee actually, Pharisee called Nicodemus. So in this conversation, Nicodemus has slunk along to Jesus in the night and has said, so the References tonight are part of this conversation and part of it, this is happening at night because Nicodemus came at night. And Jesus says you've got to be born from above. 
or again, which means he had to embrace a whole new identity. His identity was framed in his whakapapa, his genealogy, starting with Abraham, but then his line through which tribe and which family with that tribe, which gave him a privileged place. And he could feel pretty confident about his relationship with God because of his whakapapa. But also he was a Pharisee, so he observed the law. So his own actions, he felt pretty righteous. And he thought God was on his side. And Jesus was saying, do you know what? You need to start again. Not with your whakapapa. Not with what you do. Not with what you believe. But with what God is doing. Going back to the reading from Ephesians. It's not about us. It's about what God is doing in this world. What God is doing in our lives. The starting point was God. You are a beloved child of God. That's your identity. Can you do that? Well, it would appear Nicodemus eventually got there, but it took some time. So these passive, these verses are part of that initial conversation of inviting Nicodemus to let go of who he thought he was and to embrace a whole new identity and a whole new way of being in the world. Not so that he could go into heaven, but so that he could live God's life and love in the world now and be part of God's work restoring creation. And in this conversation, Jesus uses the passage we heard from Numbers, which is a really interesting passage. It's a warning for us, especially on our AGM Sunday. I mean... These are hard times for mainline churches. Have a look around. What's our average age? What's happening in mainline churches? And if you think we're uh, unusual, we're not. If you think Holy Trinity is any different from us, they're not. There's just a whole lot more of them down there. They're facing the same issues. Exactly the same issues. And out of that often is a desire to go back to what was. We pine for the 1960s when maybe 20% of the New Zealand population regularly went to church. It was never more than that, but I felt more than that. And we had vast Sunday schools and huge youth groups and they were great days. And what can we do to get back to those days? I do have a question How many of those people who went through those Sunday schools and youth groups are still involved? And how many of them still call themselves Christian? And how many of them now answer no religion on the census? So they were great days. But actually, how great were they? They sowed the seeds for where we are today. Just a thought. I mean, I was in a youth group with 150, and I was a youth group leader, and they seemed like great days. I went to Sunday School St. Peter's. Yep. This story is about a people of God who were in the wilderness, they'd been freed from slavery, and they had, were tired of saying, are we there yet? 
And God went, no, not yet. And they went, well, can we go back? Can we go home? Can we go back to what we knew? Can we go back to where we knew we fitted in the world? We knew what we were there. We knew how to survive. This wilderness stuff, this is too hard. We don't like trusting God out here. Can we go back? Can we go back to being slaves? Can we go back to Egypt where they killed our children? Can we go back to Egypt where they overworked us? Can we go back to Egypt where they starved us? That's what the story is. Those people were saying, can we go back to that? Because that's better than where we are now. And the result of that was poisonous snakes and the brazen serpent. Does anyone know where there was or is a church of the brazen serpent? Maybe one of the only ones in the world. It's on Maltiti Island. So an Anglican church to the brazen serpent. Such a good name. Maybe we could change St. George's to brazen serpent. Part of the Bible. But it's a warning. Every time they wanted to be healed, they had to look at the serpent. But actually, that serpent reminded them of their longing to go back to slavery. Because that was familiar. Oh, yeah, well, this one, this one was told by God to be made. Uh, but under Hezekiah's reign, it had to be destroyed because it became a graven image and they were starting to worship that rather than God's healing. So it was destroyed under Hezekiah's religious reform. So that's a silent warning for us, isn't it? We can't go back. We can't go back to the 1960s. We can't go back to the glory days. We can't go back to how church was in the old days. We're here in the wilderness but we can at least take courage that God is with us in this journey, just as God was with those people in the wilderness. And, well, it's Lent. And Lent is about being reminded that we are beloved children of God. And that we are God's works of art. And that we are to live as beloved children. Dwelling in the being of God living God's life for this place. So I have some questions. I always have questions. In what ways have we trusted God's compassion and love and lived as God's beloved children over the last year as a parish? And in what ways are we being invited to live as beloved children of God? by treating all others as children of God and all of creation as God's gift in the coming year. So one question is, so how have we lived this stuff out? How have we been, as a community of God, how have we been God's beloved community? And what next? What is God is inviting us into? We can't go back as we look back and look forward. What are the lessons we're taking? Have a conversation with the people around you. And then we will say some prayers about the future.